0: This is Childhood Heroes, and I'm Laura Wyatt-Smith. This podcast explores the big issues affecting modern childhood through conversations with inspiring subject experts, and we ask the question, is childhood today better or worse than a generation ago? In today's episode, we're talking all things relationships and sex education with the brilliant Lucy Emerson, who is the CEO of the Sex Education Forum. So, if you're a parent that's worried about having the sex chat with your kids, or you're concerned with the effects of today's highly sexualised porn culture, or maybe you were affected by the hashtag MeToo movement, or frankly you're just a grown-up who, like me, cringes when they say the word vagina out loud, then I think you'll find what Lucy has to say both interesting and reassuring. Lucy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Childhood Heroes podcast today. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here to talk. I love starting uh, by asking my guests um, what your childhood was like and who was your childhood hero, if you had one.
1: That's a great question, Laura. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I think my childhood was happy, loving, playful, and quite privileged. Um, yeah, I look back with with great fondness, and I feel connected to to that childhood. Um, in in how I've turned out and how my life has turned out. Um, I think there were some quirks to my childhood, which are kind of quite quite interesting. Um, for example, we didn't have a television in our in our household, um, which used to be a source of frustration as I got older. And we did get one by the time the Olympics came on when I was about 10 or 11.
0: Thank goodness um, for that. Oh, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> but as a consequence, you know, I was less aware of, famous people, celebrities. I don't think I kind of have memorable people who were out there, known people in the world. I think I drew my my heroes really close to home. So I think my mum and dad were were heroes for me. Um, I I learned a lot about how to to see the world, how to see beauty in nature, how to notice the seasons passing, how to enjoy books. Um, And those are things that I've hung on to. So they were heroes, and then my grandmothers were quite strong female figures. Both were teachers, um, and, and kind of unusual in their time for for being kind of the only females in their cohort who'd done who'd done that kind of thing. Um, so I think I, I kind of took them close to me and carried them forwards. And then there might have been some other people who kind of became on my radar, like Nelson Mandela. You couldn't avoid um, getting to understand what Nelson Mandela
0: was doing in the in the 80s 90s um and that stayed with me as well there's so much in that um which speaks to me particularly what you just said about finding the beauty in nature and the things around you that are closer to home that just feels so relevant to i think a journey that a lot of us have been on in the last year due to the pandemic we've not been able to maybe access you know other things other experiences. And so we have treasured our gardens and our homes and the people close to us. So I don't know if you feel that's helped you in the last year, having had that upbringing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it definitely feels easier to kind of go and pick it up when the time is there. Um, And with children as well, because they notice the small details. So my younger daughter, who's who's four now, she'll notice every insect and the colour and think it is amazing. So you kind of it makes that makes it easier because of the joy and the freshness that she sees in it but also I know the names of quite a lot of plants and I don't think that's very common and that's that's thanks to my mum stopping and showing me things and making me stop and look and she'll still do it now if we go for a walk
0: and I'm interested as well in what you said about your grandmas who I think you described them as strong women and teachers has that inspired your career do you think at all yeah,
1: Laura, I think I think that kind of education ethic, you know, is is it's been very deep in my in my family roots, and um, both of my parents, teachers, in, in sort of different subjects, and then with my my grandmothers as well. Um, and seeing education as a form of social justice. Um, I know one of my grandmothers, um, she was sort of taking waifs and strays into her school. She ran her own school. Um, so wow. that was something I heard stories about, the different children the different characters of different families and um also in 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 her family she would take in children who needed help of some form or another um so that kind of education inclusion um i think has been something I've, I've kind of carried through the power you can do through through knowledge um and how exciting it
0: is when a child kind of really gets it and can and can grow from there and on that subject you are the ceo of the sex education forum Could you just describe for us what the Sex Ed Forum does, what its purpose is, uh, and maybe also what sex and relationships education is itself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Sex Education Forum began in 1987, at a time when there was some moral backlash against um, honest education to do with relationships and sex education, um, it was sort of born out of that, that moral panic um, around the time of the HIV epidemic. Um, and the idea was to bring together um, different organisations that you might not expect to want to work together um, around sex education. So there were organisations with a faith background, organisations looking at relationships, family life, health and children's needs and rights. And. Um, And they found um, something they had in common, which was wanting to make sure children had the information they needed. And they would have disagreed about some details, but they found a common core of values and principles to work on. And they used that coalition um, in in opposition, really, to that moral panic and to help to educate others um, to overcome some of the fears. That coalition has grown and grown and grown. And it was through that coalition building Um, kind of structure of making partnerships with um, a wide range of stakeholder organisations that we we really managed to get um, legislative change that made relationships and sex
0: education statutory. You mentioned that sex and relationships education became statutory, so essential for English schools to deliver. And and that happened back in September 2020. And there wasn't a lot of press coverage about it because the pandemic and everything else really was dominating the headlines. But this is a major moment in education, really. Um, What can young people nowadays be expected to learn about? And obviously that will differ at different ages, but could you help us to understand what relationships and such education should be looking like in English schools now? It's it's really
1: broad, it's really comprehensive, and that's um, something to be absolutely celebrated because the research evidence says children and young people need that comprehensive curriculum. Um, It needs to have a lot of time to be revisited every year to kind of add, add to what children know as they grow. Um, under relationships education which is the mandatory content in primary schools um, there's a lot about staying safe so there's content there about knowing that your body belongs to you and knowing to respect other people's bodies that's a really fundamental starting point um, and if you really take that on board as a child if you really feel empowered about those boundaries about your rights and that will help you to stay safe and help you to treat others with respect as well um, there are bits in the guidance about stereotypes learning to notice stereotypes to not be bound by stereotypes or limited by them to think about how um, you're treating others to to prevent bullying um, as well Um, under health education there's something there about emotions and feelings and mental health and that is connected with the relationships education as well getting a wider vocabulary for talking about how we feel um, is really important for mental health and for our communication and relationships and under health education, there's also learning about puberty, about our changing bodies during adolescence, and about menstrual well-being. So that's some of the um, core content for primary. And then those topics build up and you add to them in, in the secondary phase. There's also learning about families and the importance of families to care for us in primary. And then as you move through into secondary, it looks more at intimate relationships. Um, you might have learned about friendships quite a lot in primary, but then before young people experience their own intimate relationships. They need to be prepared for the different kind of complexities there, the different risks and potential pleasures,
0: so they can manage that responsibly. Thank you, Lucy. That sounds like such a healthy and common sense development um, for our teaching curriculum in the UK. One might wonder why that hasn't happened before, and you referenced earlier the idea of fears and and also that knowledge is power. What are some of the fears and the barriers as to why people are perhaps nervous around relationships and sex education?
1: I think it's a kind of
0: generational thing that we've
1: inherited. Um, so my relationships and sex education wasn't particularly good. There wasn't very much of it. Um I don't expect it was much better for my parents either. Um, So parents today haven't got experiences of good quality relationships and sex education. What they may have instead is a sense of shame about talking about our bodies, um, particularly sexual parts of the body, um, a sense of uh, fear, therefore, about um, things like... um, what, what, what is what, what sex education is really going to be because they haven't experienced what good looks like. Right. Um, yeah. So an example would be something like naming body parts. Um, if we didn't hear the words for um body parts as a child, if we weren't taught words like vulva and vagina, and if it's an adult, we're still not using those terms, and then we're being told our children are going to be taught these terms, mm. we can sort of gasp thinking, really, is that okay? Um, but actually they're not. Um, they're not terms being used sexually. They're just parts of the body that we tend not to talk about as much. But we yes, need to be able to refer to terms, them. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the fear then is, you know, if you really kind of think what is what is it we're afraid of in using those terms, you've got to question really hard. What am I afraid of? What is the worst thing that can happen? Um, but the worst thing that can happen is that we don't have words for it. That our children cannot refer to parts of, intimate parts of their body, because then they couldn't get help if something went wrong. They couldn't articulate what they like or don't like to do with those parts of their body in, in later life either. It's harder to get help if they go to the doctor and say, I've got a problem down there. You know, doctors will tell us that people can't explain what's happening to their body because they don't even understand the anatomy quite often.
0: I think that's so powerful and I certainly know as a parent I had to have a word with myself <laughs> and we discussed as a, as a couple how were we going to tackle this because yeah there is a cringe factor to using some of these words and you realize that it's silly and wrong that you feel that way because it is just a word but nonetheless it's sometimes quite hard to say out loud but there's also this feeling that as you say if if it's a problem for us we're just going to pass on that problem to our children so you kind of have to get out your own way and get out of your kids way to help them be more empowered than we have been because the benefits seem clear yeah
1: absolutely laura and i've kind of had conversations with members of my family about it as well my my um, sister and my sister-in-law talking about how they're going to support their children. It's and I'm so proud of them that they're going to use the correct term. <laughs> um, so you know, changing what happened for us and doing something different is hard. And so you really
0: have to kind of look yourself in the mirror and say, why is it, and how can I? How can I? How can I do it differently? The way I see it is the world is happening out there to our young people and we can't protect them from it. They they are gonna engage with things that we are not comfortable with them engaging. So at an older age, they're gonna be out there on the internet. And as much as we wanna protect them, you could even put parental controls on your phone, and but you can't stop them from interacting with the internet and having conversations with other people which are unfiltered and unregulated. And so I guess, what you're saying is sex and relationships education is one vital key, one vital component to arming our children with the tools, the language and the knowledge needed to navigate their way through that. Would would that be fair to say? A hundred percent, yeah. Um, you know, I think that the kind of experience children can get
1: of hearing their peers talk about this wide range of of, of issues and, and as well as the knowledge, it's kind of thinking about their views, their beliefs, their attitudes, um, hearing what their peers have to say, um, being able to challenge that sometimes, and letting children and young people change their minds, giving them that space and freedom to explore um, because they are still being molded, being formed, um, but not leaving it too late because a lot of those values and views will be mm. quite entrenched by the time children leave primary school. A lot of things to do with gender um and and stereotypes will be quite formed by then so the education has to be quite sophisticated from from young enough to to make that difference
0: that's i think you're so right in that my four year old came home the other day and we were talking about the euros are on right now so it's it's the men's euros i should add not just the euros and my four-year-old who's a girl said to me "Mummy, a girl's allowed to play football and i was you know, shocked, but not entirely surprised because, you know, if we look at what we see on the TV, when you primarily see football, it's it's men playing it, or, you know, you see images around you and, and subconsciously, all of that is going in. And so as a four-year-old, she's not entirely sure if she's allowed to play football. Now, of course we do actually play football at home, but she was looking on the TV and thinking, you know, these are professionals. These are people that other people are watching and are here to support. Is that an option for me? And, you know, I really thought, wow, this is happening so early and if we don't do something to proactively address and counteract some of these influences where there's sort of maybe a, you know missed opportunities with regards to representation on TV or film or, or live sport or whatever it might be, then, yeah, they are going to naturally take on these ideas and that's going to shape them. And I think that one of the answers is making sure children can be agents
1: of change so they need to have those kind of critical tools those those filters to see notice what they're seeing notice those patterns and say like mummy why why isn't it women playing when are the women playing and then for us to be outraged and say um it isn't fair it isn't right they're not there they're not sharing the same space as the men um let's have a look and see where we can find some women's football to, to, to kind of counterbalance that but also what can we do about it And what would you like to do about it? And there is so much opportunity in in RSE if it has sort of time and teachers are given support to make it a really flourishing subject to work with with children and say, well, what next then? You might feel cross about gender roles. You might feel cross about racism. You might feel cross about LGBT um, discrimination. What can we do about it? What can we do about it in our school? What can we do about it in our communities? Um, and and let them take action. And don't be afraid that it might be challenging to us as institutions, as communities. Um, but if we can't start to share that power, then we're not really practising the key messages in relationships and sex education, which are about fairness and
0: equality. I'm really interested in asking you about the hashtag MeToo movement, because I know that sex and relationships education is here and is coming and is getting better in schools. But is it going far enough? Because hashtag MeToo is really about empowerment of women, about consent and this idea of equality of, of power. How can sex and relationships education help with that idea around power and consent? Does the current legislation cover that? Does it need to go further? What's, what's your view?
1: Yeah, I mean the 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 relationships and sex education kind of forces us to think it through to almost theorize what is it we are trying to teach? Can we focus what the learning objectives are, what the messages that we want our children to take away from that lesson? There is scope in relationships and sex education um, to do a lot, but um it does it does have to be quite brave about the consequences of. Saying we're looking for equality here, um, it does have to give children that scope to be actively the agents of change um, as well, and it does have to reach parents and carers as well, and and kind of ask them to get involved in educating their children as well, in reflecting on on the messages that are coming from home. Um, that will amplify what schools can do. Otherwise, it, it's a big it's a big responsibility for schools um, to sort of be responsible for changing the nature of patriarchy in society through really effective (laughs) relationships and sex education. And that you can get the ball rolling, um, but everyone's got
0: to get involved. Lucy, I'd love to find out more about your view on, on periods and how we talk about menstruation, because... My experience of being taught around that was that it was almost something, not almost, it was something to be embarrassed about. It was something you could only talk about with close friends. Boys were not educated on this subject at all when I was at school, that I'm aware of, and, you know, it was something that us girls had to kind of suffer through in silence. And I think it's probably taken me until my thirties, post having children, to understand the cycle of my body much better. Um, Hormones and the power of them in your body, despite like many children, my age being put on a contraceptive pill from my teen years, which we just sort of stayed on unquestioning for the fear of pregnancy. I'd love to know more around how are periods taught in schools nowadays? And are we making any progress in that idea of, sort of shame and secrecy around the female body?
1: I think we are making progress. It is there in the health education curriculum, which is mandatory, no opt-out of that at primary or, or secondary. So there's menstrual wellbeing, which in itself is an interesting and helpful term. Um, and it's there for the girls and the boys, but for all children, all genders to learn about. Um, so a real change from my childhood where it was something for the girls to do kind of in secret while the boys play football. Um, <laughs> and why not start teaching about periods quite a bit younger? It could be um, it could be in year three that they're first mentioned and then add to that information rather than leaving it right to the end of primary school, which has been typical. So I'm hearing a lot of primary schools now reviewing, talking to parents who often expect it to be taught earlier. Yeah, there's a really, really good opportunity there with the curriculum, bringing the age down, involving boys, um, and spending a bit of time on the issue of stigma, talking about periods, thinking about the words we are using, whether girls feel confident to talk about periods, not just in the classroom, but I'm on my period, this is how I am today. So that's a kind of another chapter, I think, in period education. Um, And we've started it. So let's see how it goes.
0: (laughs) That's so exciting to hear. Um, Yes, on continuation of progress for females, I'd love to know what you think about the rather frightening porn culture that we find ourselves in and the ability that children have now to access explicit and really quite inappropriate content at a click of a button. And perhaps also, what's your view on sexual pleasure and how we should maybe be educating our children about some of the positive Mm -hmm. aspects of healthy sexual relations? Yeah,
1: yeah. Young people have said for years and years, that one of the bits missing from um, from their education is is sexual pleasure. Um, sex Education Forum have surveyed a thousand young people which topics are being most neglected um, in in their relationships and sex education, and they say sexual pleasure is the most neglected topic, and then um, pornography is also very very much neglected, and other topics that come up on the top of the list um, FGM. And all of these are centering on the body and very much the female body. So kind of even before a child starts school, they want words for parts of their bodies. If we can't name um, the female genitalia, if we can't allow children to know that that's part of their body, that they are allowed to touch it. But there are boundaries to um, when it's acceptable to touch that part of that body and that it is theirs and no one else should be touching it. Um, that they should feel good about their bodies equally good about different parts of their body that it's not a dirty part of their body you're going to need to um, have that body positive approach throughout relationships and sex education and challenge where there are kind of inequalities that show up so if you ask um, a year seven class to give you some words for different sexual activities for example they will put on the page slang words for um boys masturbation and they won't come up with equivalents for girls and when you ask them for it they'll say boys can masturbate and girls can't sometimes you'll hear that or it's it's very dirty for girls to do that but it's fine for boys so you kind of need to challenge those challenge of those moments and if you're challenging with year seven um at least that's the start of secondary school rather than the end and no one's actually spoken to our young people and, and if we can't talk about it, if adults can't talk about this with young people, then where are they, Where do we expect them to get any information from? They're going to get it from um, their first sexual partner or their friends or from the Internet. And that's what the research has shown up for years and years. Uh, it is up to adults to decide whether to do anything about that or not. You know, that is the hard and fast uh, fact here. Um, do we want to do something about it as adults or not? getting our our young people to talk to us about it. Um, You don't have to have all the answers, um, but having some more open conversations, otherwise we won't know what each other thinks. That is gonna be saved for um, kind of shady corners of our lives rather than something that's out in the open.
0: I think there's something so powerful in what you're saying about young people are going to get this information from somewhere. They have questions, they will get answers. Now, do we want to answer those questions and ensure that the information they get is reliable and sensible and wise, or would we like them to go onto the internet and ask anyone and everyone um, in an unregulated sort of fashion? And I think there's a second part to what you say, which is really important, which is, well, if we can't talk to them about this, when they have a question or a concern or something challenging happens in their life, do we want them to know that they can come and talk to us about this or do we want them to go back out there and get their information from other could be great sources, but on all probability, some of the sources will be more questionable. So it's about ensuring that our children and young people can come to us knowing that this isn't taboo and it is part of human nature and it's nothing to be worried about. Mm-hmm. So Lucy, we've had a fascinating conversation about some of the ups and downs of how our changing relationship with our bodies and uh, with each other I am really curious to know do you think based on relationships and sex education alone that childhood is better today than it was a generation ago or worse?
1: Without a doubt it's better for those children that experience good quality relationships and sex education and the legislation means that every child should receive um relationships education starting in primary and a and a kind of full curriculum of relationships and sex education by the time they leave secondary so i'm really really hopeful um i think it is going to mean better better better
0: childhoods um happier adulthoods as well that is so great to hear um and lucy one other question it's really nice to be able to spotlight people who are doing really great work um for children and young people today, who would be a childhood hero for you now? Somebody maybe you admire who's alive operating in this field right now? A hero to me is someone who inspires me
1: in my daily life. And the people that inspire me are not people who are in the the spotlight, in in the public domain. Um, They're members of family or friends, perhaps people um, abroad um, we have family in, in Zimbabwe and in South Africa who are getting up every day without having much to eat going into school and teaching and taking pride in their work in educating children um, under really difficult circumstances and I think about them and that inspires me in my work to think that we have resources here in England and we can do such a lot with them um, and, and I, then I think of my, my children's own teachers and the work they do on a daily basis. And, and that makes me think, no, I can I've got more to give, there's more I can do. Um and then if I was to pick somebody who is more of a, a household name, I'm I'm really excited that we're looking again at history, that we're looking um at, at our racism um, that we've we've um we've got to deal with today. Um and and historians like David Olasoga. Um Mm. I think are going to help us take um, a new a new step forward on this. and i I think children will find that accessible um, and will help us to do things differently again. Um, and that's
0: that's relevant to relationships and sex education as well. It's not a separate thing altogether. That's so good to hear, Lucy. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been absolutely fascinating, and I really welcome how you have helped us to talk. About and explore what are sometimes really awkward and difficult questions for families and even professionals. So thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Laura Wyatt-Smith, and you've been listening to Childhood Heroes. When I'm not recording podcasts, I'm working as a consultant and a coach to the non-profit sector. If you'd like to find out more about what I do, please visit laurawyattsmith.com.